reminded of this, reputed to be one of the most famous sermons ever given, um, Saints in the Hands of an Angry God, the 18th century evangelist Jonathan Edwards. And apparently, I've never actually read the sermon, but uh, I've heard that Edwards, a very eloquent, powerful public speaker, was able to get an audience and, and feel like God was dangling them over the fires of hell to, to, to instill in them the fear of the Lord, to instill in them a sense of, of, of um, uh, dread and all in anticipation that they would recognise their need for God and, and turn to God. And I guess in modern times, um, an image like this might be more appropriate to what might come to a lot of people's minds when they think about the fear of the Lord. Not so much fear. I think in the modern West, at least, we probably feel like we've become a bit sophisticated for that sort of thinking about God. And if we think about God at all, maybe it's in the sense of oppression. God the heavenly party pooper, if you will, whose, whose role in life, if you pay any attention to him at all, is to put us under the thumb, to, to spoil, to restrict our lives. And while dismissing these images as being quite unbiblical, quite unrelated to the biblical phrase, the fear of the Lord, I, I do want to highlight though, uh, lest less we sort of get a mistaken view in our mind, that, that there is an element of our need to be recognising the fearfulness of God, the awesomeness of God. Uh, for example, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 admonished the Christians to consider the goodness and the severity of God. We're very comfortable with thinking about the goodness of God, but there is the severity of God to be considered as well. Again, the writer of Hebrews in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 uh, stated that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, though I'm saying that the fear of God as a phrase biblically is not about uh, an angry God that we should be seeking to run and hide from, But there is an element of seriousness about God and therefore an element of seriousness about our thinking about God, our engaging with God. Being afraid of God is not the same as fearing the Lord. Which brings us to the question, obviously, what what does it mean then? What does the scripture mean when it talks about the fear of the Lord? And and I've selected, it might seem a bit unusual, but I've selected this one statement from the prophet Hosea Speaking of the generation of Israel that would return, or the generation of Judah that would return after exile, and the response of the people to God, the deliverer, in bringing them back from captivity. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord. See, there's our phrase. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Here's an image of God bringing the people back according to his promises, according to his purposes, bringing them out of captivity to return them to the promised land. And the reaction of the people there is described as fearing the Lord. 
fearing the Lord and his goodness. And that might mess with our head a little bit because we think of fear, as we've been talking about, anger and, 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 and uh, running and hiding. But clearly this idea of fearing the Lord is something else altogether. And I want to suggest, I want to summarise it this way. It's the image of walking with God. The fear of the Lord is a fear that has us walking with and towards God, not hiding or running away from God. Uh, And as I say that, it brings to my mind that image of the garden and the circumstance that Adam and Eve found themselves in when they separated themselves from God through disobeying God. You remember well the story, it, 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 it created this sense of not just alienation or separation, but this sense of shame and fearfulness, hiding, running away. But here, the image is moving towards God. The fear of the Lord in response to his goodness Of course, we recognise the phrases used in a number of uh, scriptures. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom, of course, the idea of properly understanding and responding to the world. The fear of the Lord here seems to be describing a moral mindset that allows us to properly understand and respond to the world, going with the grain, as it were, of God and and his creation. It is to live by faith in God rather than trusting in ourselves or some other person or thing, uh, what scripture describes as idolatry. And it is to relate properly to God as creature to the creator, with humility and reverence and awe, wonder and joy. And those two Hebrew terms, Shabbat, Shalom, very important. Already alluded to creation, and and again, if you'll cast your mind back there, the biblical account describes the creation in six days and then on the seventh day God rested. At the end of creation, at the end of the sixth day, God declares that it is very good Very good. Everything in order, everything in balance, everything in harmony, shalom, peace, the ultimate sense of of well-being. And of course out of that state comes rest. Everything as it ought to be. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, perhaps the most famous statement in scripture from Solomon about fearing God. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. This is the goal of humanity. This is what it is to be fully human. Fully shalom. Fully at peace and harmony with God's purposes. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because we recognise that that's not been the way that humanity generally has gone. 
I think here of Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, and you'll recognise the, uh, the language he uses. Uh, are we better than they, having elaborated on all of this um, sorrowful state that humanity has fallen into because of their rebellion against God? He talks about how it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then you'll notice he uses our phrase as a summary statement of that condition of total rebellion, total disregard for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what a contrast. Solomon, on the one hand, saying this is, this is, the, this is the, the purpose of life for all human beings to fear God. Again, remember, not running away and hiding from God, but walking with God, walking towards God as creature in relation to our Creator. And so the opposite of that, as Paul uses the phrase, there is no fear of God in them. And so the sorry state of affairs that humanity so very often falls into is, is a result, is a fruit of that lack of fear towards God. It's been some 3,000 years since Solomon gave that conclusion and almost 2,000 years since Paul penned the words in his letter to the Romans. And a lot has happened in that time. Today, in the post-Christian West, as people want to describe our society today, it's a case of deja vu, really. Um, Speaking of our contemporary Western society in general, there is once again no fear of God before their eyes. And I want to spend some time with us this morning entertaining these questions. How did we get here, where we are today? I mean, from the time of the Apostle Paul, who was describing the condition of humanity, again, almost 2,000 years ago. And it's a very sobering description. And you know what? Historically, as the church grew in its influence, A lot of shortcomings, a lot of things that we could point to and criticise. But overall, the general movement with the influence of the gospel, the influence of, of Christianity, has been to raise humanity in our humanness, in our fear of the Lord, in our working with God and enjoying a greater degree of peace, shalom and rest as human societies to a much greater degree than ever existed before Christ. You had the light on the hill in the form of Judaism, but with the establishment of the church, God's arms were open wide to all of humanity and much of humanity has been blessed as a consequence. But... We look around ourselves today 
and we think, what's gone wrong? How have we travelled full circle back to a pre-Christian world of what I've described as self-serving idolatry? And you see, here's the connection with our theme of evangelism. I think one of the greatest challenges to us as the people of God today is to get our heads around what is going on in our world. To get our heads around how did we get to a point where it's almost as if we are talking in a different language. Even the way that we think and see, interpret, construct reality today seems to be so out of sync with the way that our neighbours are seeing and and, and interpreting and constructing reality today. I wanted to focus our attention somewhat on those things this morning. Now, it's going to get a little bit philosophical and and I I almost want to say I apologise in advance for that. But I think it's like so much medicine. It's a little bit difficult to swallow, but it's good, even necessary for us. If we're going to be as effective as we can be in understanding and relating to those around us whom we would seek to influence with the gospel. I'm going to start with this statement. And I want to emphasise something in the beginning. I'm not dealing with the whole thing about dysphoria. Um, if I were speaking about dysphoria as a, um, uh, a condition, a circumstance that some people find themselves in, um, I would be somewhat, I'd like to say compassionate about it. It's a complex issue, as is so much stuff around sexuality and sexual identity, etc., etc. I'm not going there, though. That's not my purpose in using this statement. I use this statement because of the very different reaction I know, even even in an audience like this, that we have when we hear that statement. And we hear that quite often today. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And I wonder what your reaction to that statement is where that takes your, takes your mind, where that takes your, your thinking. I'm citing here from a, an author, Carl Truman, and a book uh, that I'll uh, recommend now and recommend again before this lesson is over for your consideration. Again, not an easy read, but if you want to get an understanding of what's happening in our modern Western societies today and an understanding of how we've got here, I, I couldn't uh, recommend uh, a better book, in my opinion, than, uh, than Truman's explanation. Quoting Truman in reference to this statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, he said, and Truman, I would guess, would be a guy about my age. So when he refers here to his grandfather, he's talking about somebody who's probably in his 90s, or even older. I have little doubt that my grandfather would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. Now, I wonder how you feel just hearing that. You're probably going to go one or two ways. You think, yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. Because it just sounds so weird. Here's a person in a, in a, in a, in a body that is obviously male, and yet they're saying, 
I'm a woman. It's like, a, it's like an Anglo such as myself standing before you and insisting that I'm Chinese. You think, well, well okay, Stephen, <laughs> if you want to think that way. But you know what? It's not true. Obviously, it's not true. Now, well, some of us will be thinking that way. Some of us, I want to suggest, are probably feeling a little bit uncomfortable because we might be thinking, well, you know, it's not really very nice to talk about somebody claiming to be some way, in this case, a woman trapped in a man's body. It's not very polite to laugh at that. Today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to another irrational phobia. Now again, my purpose is not to talk about gender dysphoria. I want to use that phrase as a, a launching pad into a discussion about how is it that we've gone in the space of just a generation or two from a position where in popular society, broad society, a man and woman in the street would hear a statement like that and they would be puzzled by it. They would think, well, that's pretty weird. And maybe they would take a step away, away from a person that, that starts talking along those lines. In contrast to the typical popular man in the street understanding today, I don't see a problem with that at all. In fact, if you've got a problem, then it's you that's the problem, not the person making the claim to be a a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, In the past generation or two, the popular understanding of self has shifted dramatically. And self, I want to define here, is speaking of what the purpose of my life is. What constitutes the good life? How I understand myself, that is my self, my being, in relation to others, in relation to other selves and to the world around me. Defining self in terms of mimesis. Now again, a philosophical term. Uh, I feel comfortable because I know I've pronounced that correctly because I googled it. But notice, notice the definition. And you can get something of the sense in the word mimesis. Mime, mimicking. You get a sense of where it's, where it's going to be going. Um, finding excellence by imitating something greater than yourself, something greater than something outside of yourself. A a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Life and being have a given telos, an end goal, an objective, a given purpose and goal beyond ourselves. And this is reflected in the thinking of Aristotle some 300 odd years before Christ, before the church. 
This was the view that prevailed in the Greco-Roman world. This is the view that prevailed at the time of the establishment of the church. This was the view that prevailed because it, it, it was so comfortable, it synced so well with the thinking of the church, that prevailed for another 1,500 years. When we think about Western civilization, we think of a mimetic understanding of the world. And you can see immediately how well this and comfortably this sits with Christianity. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the crowning glory of that creation was the creation of humanity, male and female. And that God gives humanity a job to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue, to tame creation. The image really is that that garden, that cultivated garden of Eden that God made and placed Adam and Eve in. Their mission was to take that garden and to expand it into the jungle of the rest of the world, if you will. Talk about meaning and purpose. I am a child of God. I am a creature made in the image of God. And my purpose in this world is to, well, different ones have used different images. Some would suggest that that the humans were, were created as priests, as it were, to be representatives of God in his temple. That's a, it's a, 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 a valid image, I think. Stewards, representatives of the creator. Now that sits, I'm sure, very comfortably with, with most, if not all of us in this room. Um, consider the Apostle Paul's language in Acts chapter 17. When he's talking to the Athenians, notice this idea of purpose and meaning that Paul assumes, not just in his preaching, but in the hearing of his Greek audience. God, who made the world and everything in it, there's no accident, (laughs) no meaningless freak accident that just happened, the world that we live in was purposefully made by a creator. That God, the creator, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath and life and all things. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And whatever that means, it conveys this sense of purpose and meaning for humanity given to them by their creator. So they should not show that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and, and have our being. You get the sense of where Paul is coming from and where his audience was at. This was a mimetic worldview, 
a mimetic understanding where they looked outside of themselves. Some of them thought in pagan terms, idolatrous terms. Some of them thought of people like Zeus and whatnot. Some thought in terms of the God that Paul was preaching, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the common denominator was the authority, the meaning lies outside of us and we are accountable. All of us are accountable to that source. Christianity makes sense in a world that recognises all life has an objective telos in God. But in contrast, I want you to notice this. Defining self in terms of poesis and the idea here is that we find authenticity by inventing ourselves on our own terms. In philosophy, poesis is the activity in which a person brings something into being that did not exist before. Poesis is etymologically derived from the ancient Greek term, which means to make. Poesis sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Life and being have no given telos. Such things as purpose or goals are only whatever we choose or make them to be. And in stark contrast to Aristotle, this was the view to pick a representative philosopher, Rousseau. And effectively what Rousseau sought to do was to turn Aristotle on its head and in the process, of course, turning Christianity on its head. This too sounds familiar from scripture, not from Paul's preaching to the Athenians, but rather God's speaking of the consequences now of human rebellion. Genesis chapter 3, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is that promise false promise from Satan. Don't worry about God. You can be like God. Don't worry about any external authority. You can be the one that makes your own rules. Christianity in this worldview is out of place, often offensive in a world that rejects any telos beyond our own subjective individual choices. Now, I'm hoping at this stage that you're getting a sense of the contrast here. Two different worlds. Well, same world, two very different ways of experiencing and interpreting the world. And the question most fundamental of all, what is it to be a person? What is it to be a human being? We noted earlier Aristotle, just to put a date, a time frame on him, 384 to 382 BC. 
The Judeo-Christian worldview dominates the West throughout the Middle Ages from about 500 AD until the Enlightenment around 1500 AD. That's a long period of time for the establishment, the development of Western civilization. Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1788, just to again build that timeline, that framework within your mind, how relatively recent this is, and yet really several hundred years ago, where we are today did not happen overnight. Where, the, where well, at the end of the process, who knows, but we're well into the process, a process that's been evolving, if you will, in the West for hundreds of years. Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher turning inward, that is subjectivism, and the demolition of transcendence, that God business. We've outgrown that. He popularised the idea of noble savage. Some of you might have heard the noble savage concept. And for our purposes, the important thing of that is he, he idealised the noble savage living in, in, in unfettered wildness, Letting their hair hang down. Civilization for Rousseau was the enemy because it, it implied, it, it tried to impose rules and restrictions. The good life was understood in terms of wildness and freedom, unfettered, unhindered by society's rules. Um, this view was popularised by the Romantics, who, whose art and literature emphasised subjectivism and individualism, uh, moving on into the 19th century, the 18, 1800s. Again, this is the planting of seeds. Seeds that have grown into a tree and that we're bearing the fruit that we see today as a result. Into the 19th and 20th centuries, Charles Darwin. Now, who's not heard of Charlie Darwin? Again, a time frame, 1809 to 1892. Uh, I think uh, uh, his, his writings uh, were, were somewhere around the order of 1860, 1870, thereabouts. The theory of macroevolution undermined the notion of human exceptionalism by ignoring the difference between human beings and other forms of life. And just think about that for a moment. In the beginning, God, let us make humankind in our image. People were special in that worldview. Part of God's broader creation, yes. Responsible to the, for the care of God's broader creation, yes. But we were more than that. More than the rocks and the trees and the animals. We were special, uniquely created in the image of God. And you see the whole Darwinian macroevolution concept comes away and sweeps that all away. No, you just your ancestry goes back to the same primordial sludge as everything else. That's become mainstream in the West. That thinking, that assumption about humanity, self has become foundational for many in our society. It gets even more interesting. Frederick Nietzsche, uh, again, many of you would have heard Nietzsche, probably few of you have read his stuff. Um, one of his most famous things, The Madman, 
Very, very striking image, a very clever way of conveying the thing. The madman running through the village. Where's God? Where's God? We've killed him. We've killed God. Now, Nietzsche, no friend of God, he's not lamenting the fact. What Nietzsche is saying to all of those intellects of the day, you people are so clever you think because you've outgrown God. You have killed him. And Nietzsche would say, good riddance. But understand this, understand the consequences of rejecting God. What's going to take his place? The madman declared that neither claims to knowledge nor judgments of right and wrong could have any truly authoritative status in a world without God. Now he's not saying there could be no such thing as morality without God. What he's saying though, and quite accurately, quite truthfully, is that there can be no objective standards outside of us. If we've rejected God, there is nothing, no standard outside of us. Therefore, you know what? It's all about, well, how did Satan put it way back in the garden? You can become like God. You can determine right and wrong, good and evil. So, in Nietzsche's reasoning, uh, the will to power is what we're left with. And it's no coincidence that on the, off the back of Nietzsche, within, within several decades, you had some of the worst examples of fascism, the likes of Hitler, etc. This was all just predictably these thoughts flowing into broader society. Then you've got people like Marx and Foucault, the, the, the uh, father of postmodernism, radical feminism, um, all strengthened the assumption that oppression is characteristic of all dominant institutions within a culture. So we end up with what we know and experience today, this sense of victimhood and identity politics, etc. And finally, Freud, and I want, to, I want to be sure that you understand this because it's going to bring us right back to that phrase. I am a woman trapped in a man's body, which is a highly sexualised statement. Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939, so relatively recent in our history, and Freud, I would be very surprised if everybody in this room had not heard of Sigmund Freud. He sexualised human identity with his five stages of psychosocial development. It used to be that you know, um, in, in, in human development, it was understood that we became sexual beings, usually around, you know, like adolescence. Freud says, no, we're sexual beings from day one. And all of those concepts and terms, which I chose not to raise, because it embarrasses me, but his infatuation with parts of the human anatomy in describing the main objective and, 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 and development stages of people. It was all sexual and, and aggression. I don't, I don't think I would have liked Freud. I, I think he was quite a... Never mind, let's move on. After Freud in the West, sex is something you are, not merely something you do. Think about that statement. Sex is something you are. It's not just something you do. 
So, the LGBTQ agenda, same-sex marriage and transgender issues all become viewed as being justice issues, as in the case of race, rather than moral or mental health issues. That's really important that we understand. Many of us here are still, our heads still spinning after the experience of all of the same-sex marriage debates and whatnot. And how so many logical, reasonable arguments could be just blown off and dismissed. And you think, well, what is the matter with this world? Different people now define self differently. To them, it's our understanding, our language, our concepts that are, well, in some circles, immoral. Because any debates around sexuality, it's no longer, as we would have understood from a biblical framework, an issue of morality. It's an issue of authenticity and being true to myself. So when you want to question the sexual identity of somebody, whether it be in the context of homosexuality, whether it be in the context of dysphoria, it's not just that you're expressing your opinion about a a, a standard of morality. What they're hearing is you saying I'm a nothing person, that I'm not legitimate So you see all of a sudden no longer a debate about morality and right and wrong in a moral sense. It's a debate about identity. You remember all those references to race and gender in the form in the classic feminist context of male versus female? All of those raised consistently in the context of the same-sex marriage debates. You think, what's that got to do with it? Well, I hope that you're appreciating now, if you didn't before, it has everything to do with it in the minds of your mainstream society today. Because for them to, to, to challenge somebody's claims about their sexuality is no different to challenging them about their ethnicity. And everyone knows that's an issue of justice, not morality. Our post-Christian context, this is from a a writer named um, Mark Sayers, just to highlight some of the points that he raises here. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition and self-expression. This is his way of describing the state of thinking in the modern West. Individual freedom. I need to be free to be happy as I define it as a matter of self-expression. Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed or destroyed. Guess where the church fits in there? You're getting the sense? You're getting the sense? The reason for the tension? 
The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. That's the assumption. That's the assumption of most people. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. That's so important for us to understand. It's not just a question of, well, you've got your opinion and I've got my opinion. We understand that. And, and to some degree we can, we can be sympathetic to that. Yeah, that's true, but my opinion is the right one <laughs> and your opinion is, is the wrong one. But we can understand that. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is you must respect my right for truth to be whatever it is for me. And if you will not allow that liberty to me, then you're a threat not just to me but to society. That's why the stakes have become so high. That's why people get so angry so easily, so readily about such issues. I just, I just wanted to, to sort of, you know, I guess challenge your thinking about that. Well, uh, who do you think you are to, to raise a question in the first place? You experienced that at school. What a surprise that was. Many of us have experienced that to our surprise in even just a civil conversation with somebody. Who do you think you are? I just want you to understand where they're coming from, why. They're seeing it as such a, um, an offence. It very much is personal as far as a lot of people are concerned. Humans are inherently good. Again, that's a big assumption from a biblical point of view. You know, sin corrupts, doesn't it? Last time I recognised and look at the world, I, I, if you're going to say, if you're, going to, if you're a betting person, you're going to put money on who's right and who's wrong in that debate, look at the world today. Human beings are sinful, corrupted by their sin, both personal, individual sin and systemic sin, or human beings are fundamentally good. I know where I'd be putting my money. Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. After all, we know that dominant cultural institutions are necessarily oppressive. That's how they became dominant in the first place. Where does the church fit into that? It's not looking good for the church, is it? <laughs> when we, 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 you know, we could lament the tragedy that has been the recent history, certainly, of church in, in the broad sense of the word, with issues of pedophilia among priests and that, and that sort of thing. We could lament that. But that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the animosity that the general public has developed towards Christianity and God. We're seen no longer as, as the moral fibre of society, no longer as people that are worth at least listening to, even though we're not going to indulge them and get involved in that stuff. We can still be sympathetic to them. To today, last thing I would do is listen to anything that church or any such thing has to say. 
They're just on the wrong side of history, aren't they? And when they do speak, almost always they, they speak hateful things. They just can't help themselves but ask questions and challenge. And for that reason, we need to dismiss them. So forms of external authority rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Given this view of the autonomous self and human happiness, what sort of reception is the message of Christianity likely to encounter? And again, just to highlight there, uh, the recommendation of Carl Truman's book. So to conclude, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that's what we're dealing with in the broader community in a society like Australia today. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now that presents a great deal of challenge to us but I'm hopeful my purpose this morning is just simply to be make us aware of that reality so that we can understand the sort of opposition. So we can understand when we talk in Christian terms to our neighbours, we can understand something of what they're hearing. Because we all have filters that we receive the messages around us through. And really what we've been describing here is, is the predominant filter for most people in our society today. And if we're going to have any chance of influencing them, we've got to understand what they're hearing, what they're thinking, if we're going to break through that barrier at all. This is the case for most of our contemporary society. So how do we move forward? Let me give you some simple advice. Be faithful. We really literally are back to second century in the experience of the church. In second century, that's uh, you know year 101 to year 199 AD. The post-apostolic period. Christianity was an illegal religion. Rome didn't consistently enforce that illegal status in terms of punishing it, but sometimes it did, and oftentimes it wasn't empire-wide, it was, it was sort of regional. But in some places and sometimes in that period, it, it cost more than your job to become a Christian. The early Christians of this period developed what they call baptism in blood, for some, in some locations, circumstances were such that the church had to grapple with the challenge. What about somebody makes a confession of faith in Christ, but before they have the opportunity to be baptised into Christ, before you have the opportunity to walk them down to the creek, there was a very good chance that the authorities would grab them, drag them off and murder them. And so the church responded to that by developing this idea of baptism in blood where the intent to be baptised satisfied the need to be baptised. That's a pretty good indicator of the circumstances that the church lived through in this period of history. But more than that, you know the average man and woman on the street in the Greco-Roman world, when you talk to them about Christianity, ah, immoral. Those hateful people they don't honour Caesar or the pantheon of gods. 
They're enemies of the state, enemies of society, working against us and our well-being. Does that sound familiar? Christians, cannibals. We know what really goes on in their meetings. All this business about eating blood and uh, eating flesh and drinking blood. Cannibalism, immoral, detestable. This was the mainstream view of the church in the second century. And I want to suggest to you that we're getting very close that all of those were mistaken views, misinformed. But it was the reality for the experience of the church in that period of history. Their response? Be faithful. Be faithful. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is what it is to be truly human. What we can do is to remain steadfast in loving, in living the truth, in being that light on the hill. Or as Paul put it, claim your true identity, your true self. Not a self-made man or woman, whatever that might be, whatever you might imagine, but your true self. Be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the express image of the God in whose image we are made, and invite others to do the same. Yeah, yeah. Almost sounds like I've been trying to warn you and talk you out of being evangelistic. Be careful of your (laughs) neighbours. Not at all, not at all. We need to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. And it seems like today in our generation, you almost, you know, I get images in my mind. I love, I love the fantasy genre, things like Lord of the Rings and stuff. And the darkest hour and the darkest battle kind of get the sense that that's the sort of territory we're entering into. But in that context, I guess this really is a bit of a sifting of the wheat from the chaff. We've got to decide where do our priorities lie? Where do our loyalties lie? And if our loyalties truly lie with Jesus, then faithfulness is the only recourse open to us. Regardless of what the prospects seem like, faithfulness, trusting in God, Christ-likeness and sharing that with those around us. Now, Johan's going to lead us in a song. Send the light.